Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and thank you for listening to episode 19 of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. The response has been great, um, you guys, and I appreciate every one of you for the nice words, but more importantly, just <laughs> for your time listening, right? Like, uh, And I hope we're worth it. Um, that is my goal every week. I think we'll do that this week, by the way. We've got a lot going on in sports in the world. We've got questions about what Kansas City might feel like without football, the consistency or inconsistency of colleges and their approaches to COVID, and what's being missed out without fans at Kauffman Stadium. You know, as always, uh, you know, I think one of the things that hopefully makes this podcast stick out is we have some audio that you will not get anywhere else. This time it is Royals chairman and CEO John Sherman. We talked at length this week about a number of topics, and hopefully you saw the column on that already. But uh, even if you did, maybe even especially if you did, uh, I think you'll be interested in some of these clips. You know, these are things that didn't make the column. And I think there's some value in hearing it directly from him and how he answers the questions. Like, you know, we're still getting to know John, right, as the Royals owner. Uh, So at this point, I feel like every bit of insight we can get on him is useful. And, you know, you can make your own judgments, obviously. But to me, every time I hear him talk, I find myself feeling like I know who he is a little bit better. And honestly, like I feel like I respect him a little bit more, but we'll get to that soon. I wanted to start today with the Chiefs. Um, this podcast is dropping on Friday, which happens to be the first day uh, that some of us in the media will be able to watch their practice, which means, you know, football, right? Like, oh my God, guys, I'm jacked. Like I, I'd i be jacked even if this was like, you know, 2012, right? And the Chiefs stunk. You know, the, the romanticism of baseball gets a lot of play and for good reason and i i am guilty of being part of that but you know just the pace the organization the sounds the speed the power of football you know when it comes back man like it just it takes a backseat to nobody and you know it this may be a weird thing to think about or say but this would be a unique preseason for the chiefs even if covid did not exist right like usually when we talk about unique we talk about you know the changes that covid is is forcing but look like the best NFL teams, those are usually the ones that best manage change in turnover, right? Because most years, you know, a third of an NFL team's roster or more can be different. The Chiefs had 20 of 22 starters coming back. Um, That's an amazing number. And that number now, it's, you know, technically 19, but more realistically 18 with, uh, you know, running back Damian Williams and right guard uh, Laurent DuVernay-Tardif opting out. But, you know, however you want to count it, it's essentially a plug and play defending champion. Uh, we also know that Andy Reid is not the kind of coach who is plug and play. Like this is the coach who designs direct snap jump passes for a 340 pound nose tackle, right? So there's no such thing as plug and play. They're not going to play the same this year that they did last year. Um, You know, the players will largely be the same. And I think like the broad strokes of what this thing will look like on both sides of the ball will be similar, right? Like on defense, it's aggressive pass rush. It is lots of responsibility for cornerbacks. It is Tyron Matthew playing all over the field. You know, on offense, that is, you know, lots of pre-snap motion, lots of one-on-one matchups created. It is an outrageous collection of speed challenging downfield, but we don't know the specifics quite yet. And that's what's gonna start coming into focus now. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, the first round pick, the running back from LSU, he is incredibly well positioned to have a monster rookie season. And assuming he can pass protect, and the very early, very early indications are encouraging, but he's sort of like this unnecessary, like additional nightmare for defenses, right? Like, you know, even those of us who believe that good running backs can generally be had without first round picks, 
Um, you know, even for those of us who believe the secondary could have added depth and talent with that first round pick. I mean, my goodness, it is obvious what the Chiefs see here. You know, they, they are keeping their strengths, their strengths. Um, this is a dynamic player who can be used to force opposing defenses into choosing whether to cover him or Travis Kelsey one-on-one with the linebacker. Like, think about that. Good answers don't exist, right? You know, this is a stupid thing to say, uh, a preface it like that, except that it's true, that the Chiefs will have even more talent around Patrick Mahomes this season than they did in the Super Bowl run. There isn't a single important offensive player who is at that stage of his career where you're expecting a drop in production. Um, you know, Damian Williams is probably underappreciated, but even with him opting out, I think Edwards Hilaire is probably an upgrade. There's also every reason to believe that, you know, the, the 2020 version of McCall Hardman is going to be better than the 2019 version. He's going to be more comfortable in the, in the offense. He's going to, you know, just be more experienced on how to set defensive backs up, all that stuff. And he's going to be even better, I would think. And he caught a touchdown nearly one out of every four times he got the ball last year. That's crazy. It was basically one out of seven times that the ball was thrown to him. It ended up in a touchdown. You know, on defense, I'm going to be looking for a few spots specifically. Um, You know, the Chiefs had a really strong collection of pass rushers last year, and then they just got ravaged by injuries back there. But, you know, Breland speaks, at least from the pictures the Chiefs have circulated, he looks to have transformed himself physically. Alex Okafor was consistently productive before his injury. Chris Jones and Frank Clark have said they want to be the best pair of pass rushers in the league. Willie Gay Jr. sure seems to fit exactly what the Chiefs needed, a linebacker that can cover. I want to see how that speed looks in practice against one of the fastest offenses in the league, right? I'm also interested in Traverius Ward. He was, you know, undrafted. Think about this, like undrafted and barely used in 2018. Then he was a starter and consistently reliable in 2019. And then this offseason, you know, as he told us here on the podcast a few weeks ago, he got his vision fixed. Like he really could be in line for another breakout, you know, if, if he's able to make more plays on the ball now. Juan Thornhill, that's another one to watch. He's on the pup list for now. Uh, We know that, but he is such a smart player, such a versatile player. If he's able to get back to full strength and the Chiefs, you know, they they should again have the best pair of safeties in the league if that happens. So there's a lot going on, like even if the threat of COVID ending the season wasn't omnipresent, right? But, uh, you know, toward that end, uh, the NFL's case rates have been remarkably low so far. That is very encouraging. They've been, you know, so low, in fact, that the criticism hasn't been about, you know, case rates, but rather about how much resources are being used to provide, you know, just a form of entertainment. The NFL, they are well over 100,000 tests already at a time when a lot of hospitals around Kansas City and the country don't have what they need. So I don't know, man, like there are no easy answers here. It would be great if the NFL's resources could simply be transferred to the people who need them most, but that's just not how the real world works, right? Um, You know, you know that dozens of colleges, uh, most prominently the Big Ten and the Pac-12, they've canceled fall football. The Big 12 and ACC, they might make the same decision at some point. I'm not (laughs) including the SEC in that because I feel like they'd put helmets on frogs if they had to. Um, You know, high school football is tricky. Um, I wrote a lot about that this week. And and honestly, I don't know that I've ever said this, but if you only read one column from me all year, (laughs) I hope it's that one. I hope it's the one about high school football that's, you know, it's KansasCity.com right now. You know, I I take pride in staying open-minded to change opinions if I need to, but I'm not sure I can remember my mind shifting more through the reporting process of a column than this one. You know, we're all guessing with this and maybe you're as tired of hearing me say that as I am of saying it, but I can't think of anything that's been truer in 2020. I respect 
Anyone who says playing football right now is crazy, I'm thankful our kids aren't high school football players right now. That would be a hell of a decision to have to make. But unfortunately, I also think this, we had our chance at the virus and that chance is gone. Like we had our chance in March and April when case numbers were lower and all we had to do was stay the heck home. All the government had to do was direct us to do that and pay those who would be made unable to work. And collectively, we failed on both sides. Uh, The virus spread too far and it's hard now to see how we'll get anything close to normal until and unless we have a widely available vaccine. So with that in mind, uh, if you want to stay home, self-quarantine, get all your groceries delivered, all that stuff, respect, right? But that's not realistic for a lot of people. And that doesn't mean we go to crowded bars without masks or have big house parties or, you know, otherwise act like there isn't a deadly virus going around. But, you know, we can do our best to be careful. And, you know, I think we have to do our best to be careful and we have to hope that's enough. Okay, look, uh, we're going to take a quick break here and then come back to answer some questions. Uh, Weekly reminder, if you'd like to participate in next week's show, I would love you to participate. Please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, almost literally any question. We're starting to get some momentum with the questions coming in. That tells me you guys like what you're hearing, you value what you're hearing, and that's really encouraging for me. So thank you very much. The number one more time, 816-234-4365. Put it in your phone. Call me anytime. 816-234-4365. Cool. Okay. Uh, quick break. And then we will get to this week's questions. Hey, Sam. This is Chris and Lanexa for your podcast. My question to you would be if, and let's hope this doesn't happen, if the Chiefs cannot play this year, if college football cannot happen, are you like me and are you just terrified what this town is going to be like with the, in the fall with the days getting shorter every day and nothing to look forward to? how miserable this town is going to be. I'm I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer, but uh, I just, uh, you know, I think sometimes the media and stuff thinks people want sports too bad, and uh, and they almost criticize us for wanting sports too bad, but I don't want to think what this town is going to be like this fall without the Chiefs. So discuss that, please. Well, pardon me for a minute, guys. Uh, I'll be back to answer this right after lighting myself on fire. Uh, <laughs> good grief, man. Like, look, I love football as much as anybody. Fall is the best time of year in Kansas City to me, and it is not close. Uh, some of that is the weather, you know, backyard bonfires, that, you know, <laughs> the first sip of beer while the grill heats up, uh, the trees, um, in a normal year at least, the Plaza Art Fair, kids going back to school, all that stuff. But, you know, if I'm honest, a lot of it is just also football. Um, You know, games on TV and the windows open. I mean, that's just sort of the background noise of our house on fall weekends. And, you know, of all the 
chief seasons that have ever happened, this might be the one you'd most want to protect, you know? You know, there is no telling how many great plays, how many great moments, the memories, just time with friends. There's no telling, like, just how much of that would be lost without football this fall. Um, you know, there's only sort of telling that a lot would be lost. But, you know, look, uh, all that said, and I don't say this lightly, if the NFL gets to a point where it cancels, uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> we've got bigger problems than, you know, what to watch on Sunday afternoons, right? But, okay, so here's Ken with a good point. Hi, my name is Ken from Lenexa. My question is, shouldn't conferences be consistent? For instance, if you're going to say no outdoor football, how is indoor living safe? But on the flip side, if you say we can play football safely, shouldn't you always also be hard-pressing your students to follow protocols to allow you to play? Ken, uh, my man, yes, uh, 100%. Like the, the data show that the recent spikes in case rates are largely with young adults. Um, there is no place in the world with more young adults than college campuses. Uh, that makes sense, right? Like young adults know the data. They know the data shows them to be less vulnerable, uh, both in terms of symptoms and, and death rates. And no matter what the people on either extreme will tell you, a 19-year-old college sophomore should behave differently than a 74-year-old grandmother. That's just, that's common sense, right? Like, but you, you bring up a good point about pushing students to follow protocols because, you know, just because you're less likely to die from a contagious disease doesn't mean you shouldn't care whether you get it. There are a lot of reasons for this, right? Like a 99% survival rate sounds great, but if you get the disease, you are going to be wrecked mentally, emotionally, everything about whether you're the 1%. But this, you know, it's not a binary thing either. Like that's the thing that I feel like people get oversimplified and, and just ignore or don't want to think about. This is not binary. You do not either die or you're completely fine. There's a lot of evidence about lung complications, about heart complications. And this is even in young people and, and even in those who don't show symptoms. So, you know, if wearing a mask is the difference between your neighbor having heart complications for the rest of her life, you know, shouldn't you wear a mask? Um, you know, there's also the spread, right? Like you may get it and be fine. Overwhelmingly, the data says you'll be fine. But even ignoring the chance that you won't be fine, there's a pretty damn good chance that you'll pass it along to someone. And maybe that person isn't fine. Maybe that person gives it to someone else who isn't fine. You see how this goes. But, you know, anyway, the point, like, yes, Ken, um, I, we are in lockstep here. Colleges should be proactive with this. They should make reasonable precautions. You know, the, the social expectation, you know, that's, it should just be reasonable to expect people to wear masks indoors, you know, to create that critical mass of that just kind of happening automatically. That's not just campuses, right? Like we should all be doing that. Um, that's how we get to live our lives. But okay, uh, one more question. This one from Derek. Sam, this is Derek calling from Prairie Village. Hey, uh, I really miss being out at Kaufman this baseball season. And so my question is, obviously there's a lot of things that we miss. Tailgating, uh, being in the sun with friends. Baseball, obviously, your favorite ballpark food. So my question would be, what's the one thing that you miss most from going to Royals games? Um, whether it's the pregame experience, um, during the baseball game, seeing the guys play, postgame, whatever it might be. Uh, but what do you miss most about being at the K? Thanks. Dude, I miss so much. Um, you know, I should say here at the top that one of the many cool things about this very weird job is that I have been to Major League Baseball games this summer. I've been to Kaufman to watch the Royals. I went to Cleveland to see their season opener. You know, those experiences were almost like distractingly strange. 
But in other ways, and I hope you understand how I mean this, um, kind of cool. You know, sort of like a private screening of a Major League Baseball game. When's the, when's the next time I'll ever be able to do that? But, you know, the larger point you make here is beyond debate. This thing sucks. All of it. Nobody prefers COVID baseball to regular baseball. And I've thought a lot about what I miss. Um, I have to answer this in two ways, though, because I go to Kauffman Stadium in two ways. I go there for work, you know, right? As a sports columnist, I go there with my family as well as a baseball fan. So, you know, with work, I just I miss the conversations. Um, I miss the insight. I miss the information, the stories, everything else I get from just being able to build relationships with one-on-one conversations, even the really quick ones. I miss, you know, um, Gene Watson, just to name one person specifically. I miss being able to talk baseball with Gene for 15 minutes or whatever, whatever it ends up being. He is one of the game's best scouts. He sees the game differently. He feels it with this persistent passion. I love those conversations. I miss being able to ask the manager a quick question after the scrum is over. I miss, you know, being on the field where you really get an idea of the, you know, the speed and the power of the game even during batting practice. I miss, you know, the rush of going into the clubhouse after a game and then rushing back up to the press box to ride that adrenaline to, you know, what's hopefully a readable column. Um, as a fan, totally different experience, Of obviously. Um, I figure we'd have gone to, I don't know, three, four, five, six games as a family by now, we'd have picked up, you know, sandwiches or pizza on the way. We'd have, you know, packed the cooler with a few beers and juice boxes. We'd have played catch in the parking lot. Um, we'd have gone on, gone in early to watch some BP. Um, you know, sometimes the kids want to try to catch a ball during BP. Sometimes they just want to walk around. Sometimes they want to get to their seats, whatever. I, I miss all four of us being together um, just in a sort of a no stress environment like that. It's just, there's something about baseball, dude. Like, you know, the conversations with my wife, the questions from the boys, the brisket tachos, um, you know, the seventh inning stretch. I mean, I I miss all of it. Um, It's hard to just say one thing. And, you know, I've told this story before, but last year we sort of splurged for these really good seats. Um, Though, (laughs) I guess the the gift of a 100 lost team is that the really good seats don't require too much splurging, right? But Anyway, the kids love being closer to the game. They were even more into it than usual. Uh, and Jorge Soler, he comes up, and I told our older son to watch. Watch close, because this guy is a really good power hitter. Something might happen. And I'm not, like seconds later, he hits one into the fountains. And it was this magical moment. You know, the kids got to see this big home run. And, you know, if you're a dad, you probably know what I'm talking about here. But, um, you know, now my kids think I can predict anything in sports, right? That is a hell of a power. Um, I hope to use it responsibly. So I just, I miss all of it. And um, look, I know we're, we're gonna play some some of the John Sherman conversation here in a minute, but uh, you know he mentioned that the Royals have a plan to have fans back at the ballpark, and it's impossible to know what that would feel like. But you know, like going out to eat right now, that's a lot different experience than it was when restaurants could be packed, right? But um, you know, if they can do it safely, and we're a long way from that right now, as the mandates, you know, they're getting stricter, not looser. But if they can do it safely, then I'll feel good for the people who can even get a small part of that normalcy back. Um, Okay, guys, uh, thanks again for all the questions. This is an important part of the show. Uh, Please keep them coming. One more time, 816-234-4365. Call anytime. One more quick break, um, and then we are back with bits of a conversation that you will not hear anywhere else.
Hello again. Um, I hope you saw the column on KansasCity.com from the conversation with John Sherman. Uh, we don't get to know new team owners very often. Uh, the Royals have only had three. Uh, Sporting has had two. The Chiefs have been owned by one family. Uh, we spend most of the time on players. That's how it should be. You know, they're they're the exciting ones. They're the ones we root for. They're the ones who either you know win the game or they don't. But the owner's influence is everywhere, and knowing who these people are is an important part of following a team. And you know, so far at least, John Sherman is hitting all the right notes. He's lived here basically his entire adult life. He was this royal season ticket holder. He remains a chief season ticket holder. His view of owning a baseball team is as a civic responsibility. Those are his words. He said that when the time comes, he and his investors are ready to spend extra to build a championship team. So, um, you know, these are just words for now, or I guess I should say that most of them are just words, but um, you know, John and his investors, they did put actions behind those words in the biggest and, you know, maybe only, but certainly in the most illustrative chance they had when they decided to pay and retain all minor leaguers, retain all staff and keep pay cuts sort of, you know, siloed to senior executive staff. A lot of richer teams didn't do that. You know, that might seem like a small thing, but a lot of richer teams didn't do that. Hello, angels. And, you know, these are not just richer teams, but these are teams owned by men who've benefited from years of record revenue. While John and his guys, they just bought this team right before the economy dumped, right? He had an excuse to cut pay, to cut staff, to cut minor leaguers that nobody else in baseball had. So anyway, I asked John about that process of making that decision. Uh, the answer is a little long. It's about two minutes, but I want to include the whole thing here because it wasn't in the column and there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, certainly Dayton had a big influence on that, but we're specific to the minor leaguers. But in terms of the overall organization, you know, I, my feeling about the business was that, uh, you know, baseball is not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, it's really important that we come out stronger on the other side of this. And, you know, part of that's part of that's financial, but it's also, you know, your people and preserving the culture that you've built over a long period of time. And so the, and so as it related to, I mean, that, so that's, you know, as it related to, you know, not, not furloughing anybody or doing layoffs and, and, you know, really asking for the senior people, you know, shared sacrifice, which, you know, we got a resounding, I mean, everybody was on board with that. And then as it relates to the minor leaguers, you know, that was really, uh, you know, Dayton and JJ after, after spending a little time with them, it was, uh, you know, that was clearly the right thing to do, although I would tell you that uh, I had no idea that uh, we were going to get that much positive feedback for that decision relative yeah. to the minor, minor leaguers. And we didn't we didn't do it for this reason. But the sure. uh, we've certainly uh, if you think about a five round draft, we get what, six picks in the first five and. But, you know, if the six or seven undrafted free agents that we signed, depending upon who you believe and, you know, kind of third party uh, ratings of these players, you know, we got, we got, we signed somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, I think I saw one report, five of the top 15 available players. Yeah. So that, so that's like getting, uh, you know, five or six, six, six round picks. And, yeah. and, uh, so, so that, um, and then, you know, I also, my experience is, to, you know, if you can get professional athletes to want to go to work for you, uh, that's right. a pretty remarkable thing. And that's not that's not something we just did in the last, you know, six months. That's something that Dayton has, uh, you know, built up over a long period of time here. Uh, there's a lot in there, right? Um, you know, that's John putting action to the words about this being a long-term thing. That is, 
him putting action to the words about this being a civic responsibility. That is him putting action to words about being willing to spend a little bit more when the time calls for it. Um, and that phrase he used here, you know, being better on the other side of this, uh, that's something he talks a lot about to his other investors and to people in the organization. Um, be better on the other side of this. Those people have heard that a lot. That is sort of the, the mantra of the organization. And, you know, that's what we should all be doing, right, in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, in that answer, I think John is also showing respect for his baseball people. Um, he is putting action to the words about him investing, you know, not just in a franchise, but in a culture. He's showing with actions that the Royals prioritize their people over profit, um, or I guess more specifically, he's you know saying that the Royals believe that investing in people will create more profit, more success. And, you know, okay, so speaking of money, um, obviously that's the thing that most fans will look at first with an owner. Um, you know, if an owner spends above his market, you know, chances are fans of that team will like the owner. If an owner cuts corners or lets every free agent go, then it's gonna be hard for that owner to be liked. And, you know, John has, and this is interesting to me, he has talked a lot about sustainable winning. And that's fairly basic stuff, right? Uh, but he has done that in a way that to me, it is subtly signaled that he wants things to be different here than they've been. You know, the Royals lost 100 games, they picked high in the draft, they won back-to-back -back pennants in a World Series, and they lost 100 games again. Um, you know, John comes from what's proven to be a fairly sustainable operation in Cleveland, and he wants that here. To me, that means that Dayton Moore and Lonnie Goldberg need to be more productive when they're drafting in the 20s. They need to continue to be proactive with locking young guys up before free agency. Um, the Royals have been really good at this, by the way, with David Glass, but they also need more money from the owner. And, you know, look, that caricature of David Glass as this like miserly Scrooge, that was outdated for the last decade or so. And, you know, Glass consistently spent above the club's rank in attendance, for instance, um, and he did it with one of the worst TV contracts in professional sports. But he also demanded that those deadline deals in 2015 would be payroll neutral. He did not come particularly close to the offers that Eric Hosmer and Lorenzo Cain got on the open market. And, you know, that's not how an owner operates if sustainability is the goal. If sustainability is the goal, you take on Andrew Miller in that salary like the Indians did in 2016. If sustainability is the goal, you don't let Hosmer and Kane walk in the same offseason. So anyway, um, I asked John about what he saw as the owner's role for that kind of sustainability from a small market. You know, I think it depends, Sam. The uh, I think about my uh, – uh, I mean, I do, I do feel like if we can be – have a chance to get in the tournament every year, it increases the odds that we'll win a championship at some point. Yeah. But I think, but I think you still got to be ready to uh, do what it takes to add the maybe the final pieces of the puzzle. Um, mm -hmm. I think about my experience in Cleveland a little bit, and and uh, and you know, part of it, part of it's signing free agents, part of it's maybe uh, you know extending guys when they're young and promising, uh, you know, cost effectively, and then and then kind of retaining a core, and then put you know putting the final pieces together when you're really ready to compete. But I think about my experience in Cleveland, you know, I got there in uh, 2016 and um, uh, we had a payroll of about 82 million. We had really good pitching. I mean, and, and that's the other thing you can see with Dayton. You can see Dayton is really accumulating the power arms here. And I think, I think that's a great strategy uh, for the current, you know, for what we're dealing with right now. But so we had an $82 million payroll in Cleveland in 16. We, uh, Really good depth in our pitching, starting pitching, but we, uh, 
our our bull, our bullpen was okay, but needed some more depth. So we went at the deadline. We signed Andrew Miller, and you know not, he wasn't just a rental. I think he had that year two two more years. So mm-hmm. we picked up Coco Crisp and Brandon Geyer as well, and we went to the seventh game of the World Series, lost to the Cubs. Uh, mm-hmm. That off season, we signed um, uh, Edwin and Cart Nacion to a three year deal. That was the largest free agent deal in in Indians uh, history. Mm-hmm. And we probably had our best team in 2017, right? I, that's actually the team I thought we could, we all thought would win the World Series. We won 22 games in September in a row, but, you know, we got up, we showed up, we played the Yankees in the first round and lost to them in five games. So he, he went on really quick. He, he talked about drafting better, about developing better, signing young players long term. He talked about a lot of things. And then he said this We want to do all of those things. Um, and then we're going to commit to spending the money when it's, you know, when it's the right time and we can compete for a championship. Okay. And, and, you know, in the meantime, I think it's important. I think it's really important now that we, that's the objective. And I think it's really important that we are measuring our progress toward those goals. And yeah. uh, how do you measure that? How do you do that? Well, I think it, it, I think part of it is, you know, the quality of your, um, your farm system and the quality of your up and coming talent. You know, I mean, I, you got to believe that you're, uh, you know, you're developing well. And, you know, and I think, I think, I think in, I think here, what, what I've come to appreciate about the Royals is that we have a really, really good uh, group of baseball people led by Dayton and JJ and, you know, Scott Sharp and, and all of them, Lonnie. And and then they're supplemented now by really a more developed in the in the science areas, whether it's data analytics, performance science, uh, behavioral science. And so I think I think they're and so I think you get the best of I think you get those guys that have that traditional baseball background sitting right next to the guys that can give and they learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I like what we're doing there. We We have to do all of those things. Yeah, but 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 in terms of measuring progress, I think uh, you know I just think we have to be better. We have to show that we're getting better in all areas, and there's a lot of there's lots of ways to measure that. Wins and losses are one of the ways, but there's lots of other ways to measure that yeah. as well. So there's a lot of insight in here, you guys. Um, you know, I'm just telling you, owners are not always this honest. Um, they're not always this transparent. Um, you know, he is giving us his plan. Uh, his experience, he's communicating respect for his baseball people and his expectations for their performance. We rarely got this much insight from David Glass. We hardly ever hear from Clark Hunt. John is giving it to us like somewhat regularly now, at least so far. And that means more perspective. That means more information for anyone following the Royals. It's good stuff. And, you know, obviously a huge thanks to John for his time and insight. Okay, uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I hope you enjoyed the show overall, and I hope you come back next week. Big thanks to Randy Mason and Savannah Smith for putting this together, and the biggest thanks to you for listening. As always, I appreciate your help. Hope we're worth the time. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, be kind, and I look forward to talking with you again next week.